0: You know, despite all of the attempts to make it a boring flat phenomenon, gender still seems to me like something mysterious. How about you?
1: Pretty mysterious.
0: Yeah, I, I don't I don't get it, but it draws me on. And that is why we have our podcast here and we're very grateful that you're joining us. Um, as we mentioned in our introduction, we are excited to um, discuss the phenomenon of transgenderism, but we're also very wary of having a sort of monochromed view of it. it. Seems to us that it doesn't do it justice to describe it as simply coming from one source, to describe it as a simple mistake, to describe it simply as an illness, to describe it simply as a difficulty or an acting out or an immaturity or any of those things. It's Rather- just
1: that, you know, ordinary people walking around are just absolutely crazy
0: yeah yeah that 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 is i think what really dissatisfied me with uh, a sort of mainstream conservative response to our problems which is that
1: oh yeah just saying that the other side is crazy means that you can't talk to them i mean right. real crazy people you can't talk to right. them
0: yeah no they they are divorced from the human community and they are beyond our typical means of salvation we are unable to communicate and that mm-hmm. seems to be a great I agree, loneliness. And so rather than than go down that road, what we wanted to do with this season of gender is to really look at the phenomenon and make an argument, which I think should be pretty obvious, that if something as insane seeming uh, as a man saying, I am a woman, or a woman saying, I am a man, has become not only uh, possible, but basically normal, Mm -hmm. accepted not simply by those who make um, identifications in this manner, but by their parents and by their fellow
1: Or uh, just the the teenagers. Yeah, just like, I like just remember the the, the kids in the kids <laughs> in my class when I was teaching. Yeah. This is just a part of their world. And of course the decent thing to do is to accept all these yeah. people and this is just the way that things were. Um there's a lot of layers that go on into being born and swept up in a world where this is just the reasonable way that life yeah. unfolds.
0: What's crazy is not that it's crazy. What's crazy is that it's pretty it's normal. Normal. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um Now, in any other situation where you find um, something like this going on, you presume that a great number of steps had to be put in place prior to this last step, right? To go from the sort of apparent fixity of there are men and there are women and they come from God to uh, none of that is true. Um, Doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rome was neither built nor even burnt in a day. Well, it's burnt over a couple of nights, I think. But the point is, <laughs> it's <a> bad example,
1: <laughs> bad analogy. Moving on. Uh,
0: the point is, um, there are multiple sources um, of this of this line of reasoning, um, and there are multiple motivations, and some of them I think are very good motivations and very profound reasons, um, even as some of them I find abhorrent. I don't know. That's how I've been sort of. I've come up with. I've come. Through some of this with much more respect than I think I had. I think I had right. Like in the sense
1: that (laughs) there's a real dissatisfaction to something that is fundamentally off. Yeah. And so they're reacting to something that is actually real instead of just kind of floating along. And
0: it's always something beautiful in the reaction. Um, So today we wanted to look at the economic side, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: uh, our material conditions. Uh, The thing that I usually call capitalism, but this offends some people. <laughs> triggers Triggers people, and so I um I'll just call it the thing we've got going on.
1: The thing we've got going on, present.
0: Uh, and so to just maybe we could define the thing we've got going on, to kind of help us out.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I can, I can just talk about my my experience coming to New Polity, and uh, I I mean I just didn't know what anyone was talking about by the word capitalism, because I just assumed that I knew what it meant. Um, And it took me a while. It took me a while to really grasp what that meant, just because I had no conception of how different today's society is from the past. Mm. Um, And that just, I mean, it just took time for that to unfold. Um, Seeing that in more ways... Um, and for me, I think if I was going to explain it simply to someone, because my my imagination going in was that um, you have wage labor. This is the norm of how the economy functions. And capitalism is the best arrangement of how we do wage labor so that the people who work hard can earn the most money mm-hmm. and the people who don't work hard don't make any money. And I think like generally speaking, if that's if that baseline assumption is true—that wage labor is just how the economy functions—then capitalism is a lot better of a system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like I, th- I would think it is the best system.
0: Sure.
1: Because um, it is, it is true that if you, if you do work hard, like you, you can end up becoming very successful and wealthy. Um, what I didn't realize is that for most of human history, wage labor was not the norm. And it it took me so long to even – I mean, I still have trouble conceiving of what that world looks like. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was confused about medieval society because it seems so unjust to me because, like, the peasants and the serfs, they weren't getting paid. Right, right. (laughs) But I think – like, what was going on is that the notion of wealth was just wider. Yeah. Wealth wasn't reduced to money. Yeah. And we know that's not true. Like, you you know that the land that you own and your house and the stuff and gold and, like, those are all valuable things. But we don't really act like it's valuable. I mean, what's really valuable is the numbers in your bank account because sure. that's what's going to get you your coffee or yeah, whatever. Um,
0: yeah, it's hard for a cash society to imagine a society where that simply wasn't the dominant value.
1: Right, right. Yeah. It was just one one value among among many. And so like you could really have the experience of, of being like wealthy from owning land. Yeah. Like if I went out and I purchased a bunch of property, I mean it would I mean, since I like there's there's no like I wouldn't know what to do with it. Like it really is well, it's, it's not probably difficult. an experience of wealth for me. You well, know? It's probably
0: difficult to conceive of now because we only really conceive of the value of land in terms terms of money money. anyways so it's the commodification of all things has been the kind of watchword of modernity and so it's difficult for us to look back um on the past and say okay they had these things they worked this land but not as commodities they labored but not as a commodity they they Mm -hmm. um, had money sometimes and in some places but it was not ubiquitous uh money was useful some of the time most people didn't use it I mean, that's, that is I mean it's
1: just, it, I mean, that is pretty wild. Like I, I still have trouble trying to conceive of that. And that's why we ended up doing, uh, this book, the Caliban and the witch for, um, this particular episode, um, of kind of the lens of capitalism or the thing that we've got going on, um, and how that changes the way that we just see the world and end up seeing gender, um, So there's a couple of things that she talks about in this book. And I think ultimately it's helpful to say that her main thesis is that um, in the transition from feudalism to capitalism, that the witch hunt is an overlooked but like essential causal factor. Mm -hmm. I don't think that she proves a thesis. I I think that that's um, a symptom Of what's going on. It's not so surprising that it happened in this transition, um, uh, like after feudalism than before, because witch hunts were not around. It just didn't happen in medieval societies. Um, But but, but that's her thesis. But the other thing that she does a good job exploring, and she does a pretty good job with her historical research, is what exactly was the shift from feudalism to the thing we've got going on today. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: And I think the most helpful place to start is to try our best uh, to describe the world that was lost Mm -hmm. um, so that we can understand the effects of the transition. Um, And the reason this is, of course, difficult is we always bring our own modern categories onto it. The historical record is obviously scarce as opposed to our own record. Um, But I think a lot of this we covered in season one of The Politics of Gender where we really were. This I, is just
1: Ivan Illich. Just Ivan Illich. Right? Yeah, yeah, we were
0: just sort of like learning cool. this together, which I thought was mm-hmm. really just a, an awesome experience. Um, and now, hopefully, having gone through that, we can describe this in a more um, succinct yeah, way. way. So, well, the other yeah.
1: exciting thing about reading this book, because I, I I had low expectations, the Caliban and the witch, I'm just kind of like used to like, I immediately associate like witch and witchy things with witch talk. And just like kind of dumb girls in their crystals, I'm like, all right, Mm -hmm. what's going on in this book? Um, But the
0: uh, yeah, capitalism came for the witches in the end. It it made a it made a commercial thing out of them too. Yeah, that's the sort of dated part of Federici's.
1: Like the the witch was an early feminist. Yeah, it's Um, like, well,
0: we're selling witch stuff at Hot Topic now, so I don't know how feminist it is.
1: (laughs) Um. It was a good try. We all, we all
0: have to give our little try, uh, you know, for a couple of years. Um,
1: what was exciting to me about reading this book was that uh, the same historical research that I was finding in Ivan Illich and then also hearing from Andrew Jones, since mm-hmm. he's a medieval scholar. Yeah. Um, was also showing up in this book it just gives me greater confidence that people are seeing the same (laughs) thing if people with such different worldviews and intents are looking at the same information and yeah I don't know speaking about it accurately yeah um so I mean she's definitely coming at it from an angle and she goes too far um but uh yeah I think it it is it is helpful to to read and um for the most part her footnotes are pretty good yeah
0: Okay, to b- briefly describe the Middle Ages. And right. the caveat, which is always necessary, is I am not describing our personal little golden age, though it does come close. Uh, <laughs> there's injustices, there are immense injustices, there's immense right. well, problems. Oh, it's
1: just, I mean, we're still like pagans, like yeah. Christianity converting paganism. Yes.
0: Uh, our understanding here is that Christianity is, in fact, uh, the church Changing is, things. in fact, a field hospital. It is, in yeah. fact, the place where humanity goes to become redeemed so it is a dynamic process right so Um, are
1: we starting with looking at describing feudalism or just the the, major changes i'm thinking
0: of the gendered world i just want to give a brief discussion here because basically um it's fairly self-evident or fairly evident in the sources that gender simply wasn't Problematized the way it is for us, so there's not a lot of questions about like what is a woman, what is a man, what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be a woman. It's not that these questions weren't raised; it's that mm-hmm. they came within a society where the answers were being given through forms of life and culture and work, um, where, and, and I'm speaking especially of of most people. So sometimes what will happen with when people look at the middle ages is they will look exclusively at aristocratic and Royal classes, which makes sense because we have the most records of them. But Mm -hmm. what we're trying to understand is primarily what life was like for most people, the common people. Yeah. And, um, what Ivan Illich points out, what Federici points out and, and what seems to be the case is that there was a real, um, distinction between a male and a female world, between men and women. And -hmm. this was not conceptualized or lived out as these two incomplete parts that sort of joined together to make a whole. Rather, this was conceptualized and lived out as two different ways of being people, uh, Mm -hmm. two wholes, as it were, two worlds that could intersect and coincide. And this is why uh, Illich ultimately relies on the image of the dance um, as the kind of uh, archetype of the male female relationship prior to modernity that you have, you don't have in a dance, a sort of incomplete woman and incomplete man joining to sort of make this complete androgynous third. Rather you have, um, a specifically male perfection and a specifically female perfection now engaging in each other without annihilating or destroying the difference. Mm -hmm. Um, so what does this look like practically? Well, one of the things is that Marriages, uh, typically speaking happened pretty late. So you could expect in the, in the middle ages, especially in France and England. I mean, again, there's a problem of, of sources here, but women would probably get married in their late twenties. Um, and one of the reasons this is important to point out is that what it suggests is that there was a, usefulness and a reason for being and a and a kind of life available to women outside of the specific work of reproduction, which also right. formed a specific part of uh, a sphere of women, which really was their authority. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to point at two things at once. So on the one hand, um, they really did have authority over things like childbirth and labor. And this wasn't simply... Um, like an allowed thing. It was like a profoundly defended and protected. It would have been a shame for, it would have been shameful for a man to like attend a birth or to mm-hmm. sort of be in the position of midwife. There was a, there was a definite um, authoritative sphere of female only existence. right? Um, and that this, and we'll talk about this in another episode that this logic actually went all the way to the very top of society where you had the, um, religious women as the ideal. So unlike our age and unlike the pagan ages before it, Christendom is the age which had um, a male and a female ideal in the consecrated virgin. So the religious orders were ultimately the the greatest flower of the society, not right. um, the marriages. Okay. So there was these uh, autonomous and authoritative spheres of existence and then there was um, a honor and shame uh, relation in which um, there was a positive communal desire to belong to mm-hmm. um, those yeah spheres. which I,
1: I think if you hear that for the first time it can sound exclusionary mm-hmm. like it sounds like the little girl like running up to like yes. the boys room like knocking on the door let me in yes. um, but I think something that really is missing uh in our current era and i think a lot of women like will immediately recognize this is that we don't really have an experience of women working together and if we do it's kind of oddly artificial yeah it's It's like like, oh we're a women's only business we support other women we only hire women yeah um and I, i i suppose it could be really fun to actually i'd that is the environment in which I work,
0: <laughs> yeah. I was say, like, no, I think of like anarchist, that is my like, right anar- now. <laughs> anarchist lesbian stationery collectives or something. Like, it's no, I it's work for an like... assignment store, okay.
1: <laughs> There's no men there,
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah, I should probably stop reading things and start just like looking around. Um,
1: uh, but uh, I mean, like, but that is, and it is kind of more artificial and intentional. There's not really a situation where you have. I mean, if you just think about the traditional notion of women's work, it has to do with the home and with children. Mm -hmm. And that experience is a fundamentally isolated one in today's society. Like if you're being a stay-at-home mom, you don't really have a choice, but to just not really see anyone. Yeah, absolutely. And you can, I mean, like you don't have to live that way, but it's a lot of effort. Whereas in the past... You you are working together as women, multiple generations. It's not just something that happens on Thanksgiving when the family is together and all the women are in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's kind of like a little taste of yeah, that. Yeah, and like women really enjoy fun, that yeah. because we want to be around each other. And it's fun having the different generations of women around. Yes. And it's really difficult, I think, being and it's uh, such an absurdity without, like adults in your life
0: and it would be such an absurdity to imagine like a male entering into that space and saying like ah oh, i see that you're incomplete in your in your sex and that that you know it's like obviously you're enjoying a completion amongst yourself i think that's so cool mm-hmm. but in the middle ages it's like that experience so it varies from village to village town to town country to country well, what I, you in mean some places by,
1: like, what what varies like well what's what is the same as the women's world and yep. men's world but the way that that functions and the job that yep. they have so it's pretty traditional different.
0: that only women would brew beer uh i think especially in england and this is where the witch's hat comes from did you know this
1: oh yes it's <laughs> a
0: brewer's hat um,
1: well, I kind of want so one now. <laughs> yeah so the
0: idea i mean it's still a little i mean I, I say this like the history is all clear but from what we can tell the brewer's hat was supposed to stand out so, like, in a market crowd, you could oh. find where the, where the beer was being brewed and get there. And this was exclusively women. Men so could not funny. touch the brewing of beer, which is especially hilarious given the craft brew scene, which is, like, the manly scene.
1: Oh, yeah. That's so yeah. funny. But it was a woman's work. Oh, wor- we can give them should. all witches heck. We should. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so, in some, in some peasant communities, it's, like, different tools belong to women, belong to men. Illich points out that in, um, in rural France... That different parts of the cow and different um, tasks with the cow are related to women. So right. the women would milk, but the men would lead it out to pasture. But mm-hmm. the women would take the first cut of something. I, you know, it, it becomes so detailed that at some point right. you're just describing a particular culture.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but what it's like a dance of work. Yeah. But you do it not as isolated little like cogs in a machine, but you do it like as Yeah, and it's
0: totally, and it's, and I think moderns have this difficulty in understanding this because, as we'll discuss, we've been very atomized in our genders. Mm -hmm. Um, But we imagine this idyllic thing as like men and women participating together in work, as if what it meant was they did it together, like doing the same thing together, and that's precisely the wrong idea. Right? It's that they took sexual difference, which was already a part of their bodily and, and their experience of mm-hmm. life and they like exploded it to its infinite the um they were participating precisely as things that never collapsed into just one task
1: right so i mean they did work together but i i think there was an example that illich gave of going out to the field and they're both literally doing the same job but uh-huh. there was the women's version of the tool and the men's version of the tool. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, Yeah, So you're still
1: doing it as like within this gendered group. And I, like he, he and um, Federici both describe this experience for women um, as like giving them something like real, like a a real, um, like power and a real belonging. I don't think it, I don't think the women felt that, as an experience of exclusion from the men because they actually belonged to something. They had their own club.
0: Yeah. And one way to think about this is it's still present today. I mean, this is something I always have to remember. Like we are the same people as them. They are our (laughs) fathers and mothers. So when we talk about them, it's not like this alien, this alien race or something. Um, And, and, and what, and what we can experience now is, um, OK, I'll, I'll take as an example. Um, in the 19th century, I think, um, there was a researcher whose name I remember, J.F. McLennan. Yeah, that's right, the mm. sociologist sociologist uh, McLennan. And he noticed a trend, as such thinkers tend to, of um, mock bride the- theft as a almost universal part of human culture. And I don't think we have to go too far afield to recognize that he he was correct in his recognition that something about getting married inspires people to pretend like they're stealing, stealing the, the bride. bride. Uh, yeah. Now the the the. The he and he points to these wonderfully crazy ceremonies, like in, <laughs> in you know in in Arabia, it's like they're chasing the bride on a camel, and in uh, oh, wow. various Native American cultures, they like pretend to have a war where they all throw sticks at each other, and then the one party the the, the, the winning
1: party grabs with the, the bride. bride. Yeah, oh,
0: um, it's it's very common. There's a there's a robust tradition in we Germany, bring it back. and usually what happens is like. The brides get stolen, and her father has to buy everyone drinks, and then they get the bride back. Now, what's obvious is that it's a joke, right? Mm -hmm. This is funny. Um, People have been brought to the conclusion that this is because in the past it wasn't a joke, and I find that to be a a bit of a leap. Like, somehow that it's funny and light now meant that in the past they really stole brides. But I think what you can see in this tradition...
1: Like, it was a ritual joke so that people actually...
0: I think the ritual joke is jokes are only funny if there's something real, like, like, it's not funny to steal a bride if the, I'll just say it like, what is apparent is that there's something to steal the bride from. So the woman is useful. The woman belongs somewhere. You think of the Psalm that says it's often just spoken of in relation to Christ and his church, where, where um, it says, my daughter forgets your father and your, you forget your people and your father's house house. for the king desires your beauty. Mm -hmm. The sort of up until modernity, the way to understand courtship and marriage was that you approached a complete world in which the woman belonged and was useful and had an identity. And you asked her to come forth out of it. And the reason that we can make fun of this or joke about it as theft is precisely because there is something sacrificial there. Like, there's a tear to be shed. Like the woman is leaving something real. And I think there's a, it's not, it's asymmetrical, but I think there's something similar mm-hmm. in, and we'll talk more about this, like in the male experience, which is that the woman calls you forth up out of a sort of completion a perfection of life. And then, and now that's like the soul experience is women trying to get men to, you know, man up and marry and such. But okay. The point is the really interesting thing to me was how did, how did this become a problem? Like it, um, how did this become something that a sociologist is investigating as an oddity of human nature? I mean, even in our current bridal ceremonies, I think there's you see something of this when the father is the one to give away the bride. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty much socially expected that he'll be cry, sad about yeah. it. Like cry, maybe do a mock gesture of like, you, you know, you got her kind of thing. Um, so it's still present in us. But what's odd about our society, of course, is that there, there is nothing but the emotional belonging um, that mm-hmm. the bride is being taken from. So like typically speaking, the, the child and especially the female is um, not involved in any woman's work as a woman. Um, I mean, she's competing for work mm-hmm. with men, but there's no woman's world. There's no woman's sphere. A daughter is basically useless, economically speaking. Um, and the giving away is kind of reduced to an emotional um, tenor without like economic base, as, if that makes sense.
1: Right. There's, that kind of weight isn't there. But in a medieval society, um, because you're doing like subsistence living, the world of the of women and the world of men are both essential, and so when yeah. you're taken out of that world into someone else's house, totally. like there is a real loss in the house that you're yeah, leaving. An asset.
0: They had to sometimes pay a lot of money for it. I mean, it, it explains a lot of traditions that we find very distasteful, and I'm not saying that it forgives everything about them. Like there could be, you know, like buying a bride is obviously not what we want to go for, mm-hmm. but the idea of compensating a family for the loss. Of a child is something that really only makes sense when we under within a subsistence society, within a subsistence mm-hmm. economy, where the presumption is that everyone is contributing yeah, there's a real work. Loss. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, just to kind of bring it back to yeah. the main question um, so, we're looking at the shift from feudalism to capitalism, and we're starting off with this world of subsistence living. Yep. Um, work is gendered. But yep. it's like this dance um, and wealth is not wealth can be counted in money, yeah. but it doesn't have to be. Um, and so women's the, the work that women are doing, it's seen as obviously valuable and obviously as work, um, even though they're not earning money from <laughs> it, because that's also true of the men's sphere. And that's what changes in the shift from hmm. feudalism to what well, we've got going on today yes um i think one of the first things that she points out is um the commutation of taxes to money yeah um or just you pay your taxes in money now instead of in kind and so if you were uh doing subsistence living uh you would pay the lord in whatever wealth actual wealth that you generated whether it's like chickens or wheat or cloth Mm -hmm. Um, but as soon as the Lord started demanding, um, money for their taxes, because it's, it's more potent, it can become anything that you want. Like a cloth can only be a cloth, mm-hmm. a chicken can only be a chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, then suddenly, um, you have to be a lot more dependent on, I can't remember if she says it's the, the merchant class, but I mean, you have to exchange it for money Correct. so that you can pay the Lord, which means that now you're dependent on this outside source instead of just yourself. Yeah. So you've created a layer of uh, dependence. And
0: Illich goes further to point out that when, when you move from in-kind taxation to monetary taxation, it also becomes sexless. So the the in-kind world was the world of women's work. So you mentioned chickens and cloth. Well, Mm -hmm. the first thing that jumps to my mind is that, well, cloth would have been produced by women. Women. And when we actually know this from, from records, when taxes were, uh, and I should say it's it's rents, technically. I mean, um, customary rents were paid right. to the Lord. Um, they were paid differently by men and women. Like, the the movement of wealth upwards <laughs> through society yeah. came from two worlds. So whoever was doing cloth, which typically was, was women, would pay in cloth or chickens or whatever the case may be. Um, and what money – and it wasn't always the case. Like, there's times when they were all doing wheat or something like that. Right. But – the point is, it was precisely the like what was created, what was produced through these gendered worlds that became the way of maintaining your place in society and moving mm-hmm. the wealth up, which is sort of the kind of cosmic liturgy, as it were, right. of, of the whole feudal order. Well, once you have money exclusively, mm-hmm. then both man and woman translate whatever their sexed or gendered work is into a unsexed um, androgynous signifier. Mm-hmm. So, money is money is money. A man's money is as good as a woman's money because mm-hmm. uh, it is sexless. Right. So this um, this is a this is a beginning, and you can right. see, I think, already how um, two things happen at the same time: that we have a gendered world that moves towards a um, sexless world or a world in which gender is very extrinsic to the person at the same time and really causally as you have mm-hmm. a movement towards a um, centralized economic mode. Right. Fair?
1: Yeah. So so the Lord start demanding money. Yeah. Um, and then uh, from what it seems to me, there's just uh, a bunch of things that happen all at the same time that kind of ended up with uh, wage labor becoming more and more the norm. Yeah. Um, a lot of the reason why there are the changes is because of um, like the philosophical and ideological movements that are just happening in the time. So the second thing um, that she points out is the privatization or the enclosure of the commons, yeah. um, the seizing of church property. Um, because again, like if you're thinking like I was, um, looking back on the past, the serfs, the serfs situation is entirely unjust because they're not getting paid for their labor. And then they have to send taxes back to the lords. But the the whole relationship was just different because the way that the lords owned the property isn't in the way that we own property today. It was the commons and the Lord was essentially responsible for it and so if things went awry he was the one responsible for fixing it um and to be compensated for that he was given some of the wealth of the people who lived on the land yeah uh and that was kind of a the give and take of what happened but because wealth wasn't just determined in money i mean like these people really like had stuff (laughs) yeah um and they really had uh, wealth uh in this life that they were living um, yeah, to
0: have access to the commons, um, and to have land because it was, it was that, but then they also tended to have, um, strips of agricultural land on the Lord's land. Um, when these lands were taken, often church lands, uh, in the Protestant Reformation or, uh, through enclosure acts where under the argument that the land would be more productive if it was privatized, um, Um, land was enclosed and I mean it's it's called the Great Plunder uh, typically so it's hard to speak of it in neutral terms Mm -hmm. but um, you lost a lot of the kinds of labor that were possible and gendered Um, it's that you now had to go elsewhere to work Um, the traditional forms that you engaged in and farming and agriculture weren't available and so um, this is also the rise of uh, poverty, really, especially in England. Mm-hmm. The pauperization of, of the working class is how Federici um, explains it, but it's also in a way the creation of the working class as a as a object. Right. Um, yeah. So, point, well, now,
1: I mean, if the lands yeah. are privatized and it's not like this common to which you have a right to work and produce your own wealth and you owe some of that back to yeah. the Lord, it's now his, and so the way that you can obtain whatever you need for survival is by hiring yourself out as labor
0: yeah because now you need money to buy i mean you need
1: money to pay the taxes and you don't have access to this property anymore because it's it's not the commons it's the lords and so this is really the the rise of wage labor which again was such a huge mental shift for me especially reading that um Like, these people rebelled against wage labor. Like, they thought it was beneath them. That was Mm. something that the poor did. Um, Yeah. Because if you...
0: Federici has this great anecdote. Um, Such was the hatred that workers felt for waged labor that Gerard, when Stanley, the leader of the diggers, declared that it did not make any difference whether one lived under the enemy or under one's brother if one worked for a wage. Uh, And then she goes on to say that this explains the growth in the wake of the enclosures of the number of vagabonds and masterless men who preferred to take to the road to risk enslavement or death um, as prescribed by the legislation passed against them rather than to work for a wage. Right. Um, So there's a couple of things to note. One is that wage work was up until this point considered a sign of poverty hmm And so I know I've said this before, I'll do it again, uh, citing Ivan Illich, who's citing something else. But <laughs> in his book, Shadow Work, he discusses um, the way in which it was a particular city in, or is Florence, uh, defined the poor, because they had um, this scenario where they, uh, they had someone who's died, and they had his money, he gave it all to the poor, and so they needed to give it to the poor, and so they made a list, which is why we know about it, of all the poor in the city. Um, and chief among them was fathers of families who have to work for a wage. So this is just considered so a sign of poverty. When now it's the only way we can imagine right, living right, at all. Right. So when this is introduced, it's resisted. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's, this doesn't go qu- quietly or, or easily because from the perspective of the people who it's being foisted on, um, they're taking your land. Your you way are of no life. longer able to grow your own food subsistence is gone for you. And now the only route left to you is what you would have been ashamed to do, which is to hire out your labor as if it were a commodity and use your money to buy back the food that is coming from the land that you were previously working yourself. Because now the the wealthy landowners are utilizing the land and, yeah, increasing Mm -hmm. uh, agriculture output, but they're also using a lot of it for export. It's becoming, food itself is becoming a commodity, and uh, now we all have to use money to subsist. And And this is, I mean, again, it's important to note again and again that this is a primary experience of sexlessness, too. Like the, the poverty of now having to be someone who sells your labor and uses the wage to buy a commodity in order to live does not describe two ways of life. It does not describe a dance. It describes a scrabble of people who have various capacities. And it's Mm -hmm. a scrabble that women always lose because they have children, they have little kids, and they have pregnancy. And so what seems to be a kind of neutralizing effect, because this is often how attacks on feudalism are described, that like it's all unequal,
1: Right, rents right. are
0: going up to the Lord, and what does the Lord really do to deserve that, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so there's a rationalizing in the enclosure laws and getting rid of all of these traditional rights and customs and getting rid of in-kind payment and just having it be money because now, is, aren't we all on the same playing field? I mean, we don't own the field anymore, but theoretically, <laughs> we're on the same playing field, right? Um, and that would be true if there were no men and women. Like, if gender wasn't real, then I suppose it would be a kind of equalizing thing. But as it stands, um, men are more capable of existing and uh, living in these no conditions. No wage,
1: labor, world, because they're constantly available to be hired. Or as women just speaks of the ways that our bodies function. Seasonally, and because we're not you're not hireable. As, <laughs> yes. Um, and there was something else that she pointed out, too. Um, those, I was surprised because it, uh, I mean, there was the taxes from the Lord and there was also the taxes from the church. And she writes about how the peasants were really deceived because they resented yeah. the taxes that they had to pay the lords, and, and, and the taxes they had to pay the church. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of corruption that was oh, yeah. happening. Um, but they were, they were deceived because when they rebelled against the system, what they were given was a worse one. Uh, because this is, uh, I mean, kind of the effect is what she calls primitive accumulation, which she takes from Marx. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of asking the question, how did we get to a situation in capitalism today where wage labor is the norm, money is the norm, and then the majority of the wealth in terms of capital has migrated to the hands of the few? Yeah. Um, and so, like, the... What what I'm seeing happening is that the common people have less and less access to wealth. Now, granted, at that time, they didn't have an absolute access to wealth. They didn't absolutely own the commons. Yeah. They didn't absolutely own their stuff because they owed something to the Lord. But yeah. they also yeah. had greater access to that land and to that wealth. And now it's just, now it's absolutely cut off
0: from them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you really do have, I mean, in some ways it's just not a complicated scenario. Like, um, uh, this is the beginning of poverty that did not exist prior. This is right. mass starvation, mass hunger.
1: Well, cause um, you also have the movement of, um, like people who, I mean, there's the wage labor that's happening, uh, in the same like places, uh, where subsistence living was happening, but you also have a big movement of people into the cities Um, and I mean, you certainly don't have access to the same kind of life that you could have been living. Um, starvation was a very big problem and commercialization didn't really seem to fix it because you could make your land a lot more productive, but then those people were just using it for like their own accumulation of wealth. And it wasn't food that was more productive and then going back into the common people.
0: Yes. Federici makes this point, which is that at the same time that Labor is being commercialized. Everything else is being commercialized. And so food is now being exported on the market. Uh, Merchants are holding grain back because they can sell it at a later date for more money. And Mm so when everything is commodified that is made for the purpose of sale and subsistence is just gone from your society, Um, then it doesn't necessarily matter that you have increased productivity, which Mm -hmm. is why... Despite it being true that through what they did, especially through the development of new technologies, um, the kind of peasant's land became technically more, more productive, productive, even while it became much more uh, unavailable. Um, right. it, uh, what was I saying? Oh, the, e- even while this was true, you still had poverty to such an extent that this is the same period that the state has to intervene.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is where you have the development, not just of the poor laws, which sort of criminalized poverty and made it so everyone had to work or they would be in a poorhouse. Uh, this is in England. Um, but also the first time the state is viewed as necessary for providing widespread social assistance, widespread mm-hmm. relief. Right. And I think this is important to note because often the way capitalism is framed is you have this idea that it is opposed to welfare as if, like, if we got rid of welfare, then we would have more competition and we would have more people willing to work. And to some extent that's true in any given scenario. If
1: if wage labor is just kind of the bottom baseline. Mm -hmm.
0: But, like, what's important to note is that we only got to that state because of um, these kind of early moves towards uh, free market, um, uh, early moves towards a uh...
1: not, not the not free market, but just the movement of everything being done in money. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that is helpful. It's capitalism. like yeah. it's just moneyism. There's a world in which money wasn't everything and now we live in a world yeah. where money is everything yeah. and that's the way that it's evaluated. Um, yeah. You could control things a lot more easily through dollars. Yeah, um, but this this is kind of marking a shift or at least in my head of the conversations of what she's exploring in the book. So, like, what caused the shift from feudalism to the thing that we've got going on today? So, like, taxes are paid in money, uh, the enclosure of the commons, the rise of wage labor, commercialization. And then there's the question, well, what is the effect of this on women, on the common people, and on the gendered worlds? And one of them is, yeah, the problem of the poor. Um, this new tension arising in cities the state having to intervene not only in welfare but also in um, kind of gendered norms mm, yeah. uh, you had all this this tension in the city uh, and so some of the solutions were pretty wild and grotesque um, like you have like all these like uh, like poor people who are starving who are upset with this new system that they're living in. And so to ease some of that tension, some of the solutions in different places were to uh, legalize rape of just the poor women, not Mm -hmm. the upper class, but the poor. Or in other places, there were municipal brothels. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you could have, I mean, you also see it swinging the other way, too, when you have the need for a labor force. And you need women to perform the the job, I guess, of producing for the labor force. And so suddenly the state starts to really care about how many children women are having.
0: Yeah, let's, let's back up and talk about that because that's sort of the the crucial point. Yeah.
1: Um, well, it's just it's it's interesting and creepy.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think creepiness is uh, the right characterization because something new is creeping upon everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, women suffered this dispossession from the land more than men. Um, Everybody suffered. Uh, It was the experience of being dislodged or um, disembedded.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And part of that is a spiritual experience. In Christendom, people experienced themselves and received their identity um, from the place where they belonged. So when we began this discussion, we talked about how it wasn't really problematized, this being Mm -hmm. a man or being a woman. And what I want to narrow in on is the fact that that's because identity really comes from place, belonging and ownership and family. And these are precisely the things that people are being disembedded from in this movement towards a sort of money-worshiping world. Mm -hmm. Like you increasingly have to leave your family and get a job elsewhere. You increasingly have no land to call your own and no identity that comes from that land, like you're mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can be mobilized to other places. And very often you, in this early stage of capitalism, you've just left the land and now exist in the city. Um, you don't have the customs of a particular place. The um, One of the things the capitalists did when they banned the commons is pretty much de facto, but sometimes de jure banned uh, the saints days. So this is in the Reformation, England, oh, yeah. where you no longer have the kind of festivals and feasts that would take place on the commons. You also had those being in under the, I think the guise of religious reform, um, right. uh, taken so away. now
1: you work on those days and you have no place to party. Yeah.
0: And we haven't even discussed that is the, the liturgies, the feasts, the festivals, Catholicism is a place where the genders come together to dance. So, you know, whether it's St. John's Eve or St. Nicholas's day where there's a boy Bishop or whatever, like the way that answer to the question is lived out. What does it mean to be man? What does it mean woman? What is the destiny of the boys? What is the destiny of the girls? Um, these are lived out in common in festival and feast. And it's precisely what's being uh, taken away through the privatization of land, through the pauperization of the working class. So when I say this affects women more, it's because they, by nature, um, and specifically pregnancy and childbirth, are less mobile and can't respond to this world without more pain, essentially, than um, than men experience. And then (laughs) we have um, a new ideology Mm -hmm. uh, and a new system. It sometimes goes under the name mercantilism, um, but I I would suggest that it's sort of before and after and in mercantilism in different ways. Um, But it's basically as money becomes the chief purpose of life, as labor becomes a commodity, so instead of being something that human beings who live in places and are particular do, it becomes a commodity. Um, as this is happening, the, uh, um, well, see, I think, I don't think people necessarily understand the way this transition happened. It's like, um, the, it was necessary to treat labor as a commodity, even though everyone knew it wasn't like, no one actually thought like labor is something that is like, the, the rocks you get out of a quarry, like it's people and it's their lives. But what happened is as industrialism began to, to really kick off, um, people were basically investing in heavy machines that cost a lot of money. And there was, there was a period in which, um, to do any kind of, uh, mercantile activity, you put a lot on the line up front, which means right. you need everything to be as predictable as possible, so that you can make sure to get out of debt and to start making a profit. Mm-hmm. This required the treatment of um, people as a workforce, it, because if they're not treated as a predictable raw material that you can have increases and decreases and that you can move about, then It's not possible to to predict a certain future of profit.
1: Right. You need to know how much they're going to produce, how quickly, and how much you need to pay them.
0: And at the same time this is happening, everything is becoming centralized as a result. I mean, to lose the commons, to lose the laws and customs that regulated them, to lose the church land, is to eventually get closer and closer to the idea of a nation that we have now. That's one homogenous language-using unit. Unit, Not lots of towns with different laws. I mean... uh, but, but you know, England, France. And mm-hmm. this is happening at precisely the same time when the uh, production and making money is seen as the strength and the wealth of nations. There, I said the word. The, the wealth, wealth of nations. Of nations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you have at the same time, and, and it's probably helpful to consider that, you know, in the feudal period, it just didn't really matter how many people you had. You know, like it did for war, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, if you were in charge of villages, well, you would obviously not want, you know, famines or plagues to wipe out your population or something. Mm-hmm. There was not this sense that if we had more work and we were producing more output, then we could have a stronger state or something like that. It just mm-hmm. wouldn't have even made sense. The words weren't, weren't even there.
1: Yeah, well, because it was so local.
0: Yeah, I mean, everything was. You
1: didn't have a national. Sensibility in the same way. Yeah, there was just a loyalty to your your place and your your people, and your concern was just that what was yeah, around you.
0: Yeah, like even even wicked concerns were concerns of lords over their of their particular place. Mm-hmm. Um, and with this centralization, uh, women start to at the same time that they're becoming useless as competitors within a sexless. Regime of wage labor, they're becoming crucial in terms of reproduction, the reproduction of the workforce, mm-hmm. because now the success of nations is seen as dependent on its ability to provide this workforce who can be the labor commodity, who can ensure capital's right. um, profits.
1: Well, another piece that she was she was pointing out, like in women's work, you had the things that belong to women they did together. Um, as kind of a group um but then with the rise of wage labor um like women are not as hireable as men for all the reasons that you mentioned and so i don't know exactly like how it came about but i mean you you really do see like women being kind of pushed out of even the jobs that used to be theirs like Mm -hmm. i think um making beer was one of the examples that she gave yeah um now because it's like a wage labor job, and eventually women were excluded from wage labor. This is no longer a female practice, but a male practice.
0: Mm-hmm. Or you see in um, the introduction for the first time of male doctors into childbirth. Like this mm-hmm. now becomes a medical procedure that men administer, and it right. no longer so belongs to an not authoritative. Only are
1: women just not as good at making money because of their natural vulnerability. Our natural vulnerability, but um, women are being excluded from the labor force so that you really only like functional job is to produce the laborers.
0: Yeah, and this doesn't. This and it's a
1: real value.
0: Oh, right. it's. it's um, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, it's not true what they say about it, right? It's not actually producing, like, it's love, it's marriage, right. it's children. It has so little to do with raising a workforce for the GDP. Mm-hmm. But the point is that human life is now intersected by this state concern. So right. you're not just receiving what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a man from below and from, from I'm sorry, beside you, like your your peers and your land. Mm-hmm. You're receiving it from above as a goal that's fundamentally sexless. So the state's goal is money right. through production. And uh, the woman is useful as a means to that end, right? not to her end as woman. Mm-hmm. So this is why it can be very confusing, I think, to a Catholic, because there's something... Very pronatalist, you might say, about this period right. of, of history, which. Yeah,
1: it seems very pro life.
0: Yeah, because basically, to, to describe the history, um, you're seeing for the first time a profound concern that women reproduce, mm-hmm. that they have babies, that abortion is criminal, that birth control is not allowed. And I think if you do a sort of cursory look at this, as a Catholic, you can say, wow, it's like the early states had like a concern for morality. And like in the Mercantilist yeah. <laughs> period, they were really concerned with like upholding traditional gender norms or something like that, yeah, right? Yeah, that, yeah. Would be, that would be my initial sort of caricature. But I found in history, really bad things usually start out by looking good. Uh, <laughs> this is sort of a life principle. <laughs> um, and I think the reason is when something is is made vulnerable for the first time, when it's disembedded from its world, when it's alienated and 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 right. fragile, it's precisely at this moment where worry sets in, right? And you want to protect it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And something very similar is happening here. Like women have been disembedded from their worlds. Their mm-hmm. worlds don't exist actually. Uh, they're not really allowed to have them anymore. And so they stand apart as. As this object that's useful to the state's purposes, um, but now the state is worried that they won't do the thing that they need to do for the state to achieve its ends, and so you do see a pronatalism. It's there. It's it's criminalizing abortion. It's criminalizing birth control. It's um, and and this is where Federici has the theory that it basically leads yeah, I mean, directly she, to witch hunts and such.
1: Right, it's true. But also backing up, like she she kind of looks at the medieval world as being this. Uh, kind of feminist atmosphere where all these things were decriminalized. Yeah, but I mean, like true. from the church's perspective, these things have always been sin. So the question is, if this has been true in the church's tradition in all of Christendom for this long, why are these laws being implemented and being written now yeah. and not in the past? My experience um, of
0: having... Children, is that the moment you start making explicit laws, it's because you've lost some kind of oh, control. Oh, yeah, because
1: <laughs> someone did something dumb. They're
0: like, look, I'm sorry. We are no longer going to have play knife fights in the kitchen. It is, it is banned. banned. And it's, it's banned. because something was disembedded.
1: My, my favorite law in uh, the Jones household is no chanting. Oh, that's good. I'm sure something happened. <laughs> no chanting. <laughs> it's just what little boys do. And there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are a
0: lot of, a lot of them boys.
1: Um, yeah, but but uh, kind of the the point is that like now now you have problems, and so you need
0: right that's laws in
1: mm-hmm. um, the state. I mean, it's not like um, like this is malicious or in- intentional. Like the state has certain concerns, like the success of the economy, and so it's just going to view you in that lens. It's not going to view you as a person. That's yeah. just what it's supposed to do. Yeah. Um, but if you have a state that's growing more and more and more and it's becoming um, like you have more of a surveillance state, kind of like what we were talking about with them, um, the rise of welfare, you need more surveillance on your people yep. so that you can find out that the help that you're giving is legitimately to people who need help. Yeah. Now you need a lot of details about their lives. Yeah. Now you need to know about wages. Now you need to know about numbers. Now you need to know about people. Yeah. Um, and the same thing is happening with all like the, like the tension and population growth. Now it's the state's job to regulate all these things. And so it gets creepy.
0: Yeah. And, and, and it's the state's job to regulate it because for the first time it's been disembedded and is threatened. it's not
1: being self-regulated anymore. Yeah. It's not also coming from the church and from all these other yeah, sources. It's threatened
0: by poverty on, on every side. Cause, because, um, it's, uh, being performed by people who are acting out of self-interest. It's like, I don't know why we ever right. expect yeah. to allow people to act out of self-interest and not have broken and wounded people mm-hmm. around them as a result. But that is what what the experiment was.
1: So there's a there's a couple of things that she pointed out of just the – I mean, because her yeah. book obviously focuses on women in particular. Um, so, like, you have the criminalization of the poor. Because, I mean, the poor really are disrupting things because they're starving. Yeah. And so they're engaging in criminal activity. Um women are a lot more vulnerable in that situation the criminal activity that women turn to is prostitution so Mm -hmm. you have a rise like a ton of prostitutes and then this isn't good for the society and so the state kind of cracks down by making it illegal which tends to just further hurt those women who are already Mm -hmm. starving and having a hard time with money in the first place Mm -hmm. um you have a lot of weird puritanical laws i mean like with the state really getting i mean like the church has always has always had very intimate laws about sexuality Mm -hmm. but now you have the state enforcing them yeah um which is not what was done in the past um and i really like that she point this out and just in general you kind of had um a cultural and also a legal um infantilization of women Mm -hmm. like they're being banned from wage labor and even from like these places that was their work um you even have them being banned from midwifery which is insane um and kind of this creation of this propaganda of women as being uh crazy and volatile and needing to be contained i think at one point she points out that like women were really not encouraged to spend time with friends because that would make them more volatile and crazy hanging out with their female friends and i'm sure this varied a lot in um different cultures and there's different different um times and places where it like presses forward and pulls back like the victorian area was especially insane um but you just i mean basically what you're seeing is a bunch of different attempts for the state to start regulating Gender, but it's doing it with an eye of what is your role or function for the labor force and what if what women are primarily useful for is for the production of children and that's the thing that everything is going to be aimed at.
0: Yeah, and you can see how this is in some way just the economic side of Protestantism. Um, So she brings out that... um, all of this is coinciding with the not just stealing of the monastery's land and banning of the religious orders um, in England, but with a view that now can no longer imagine that woman's world and the kind of completeness of female existence, but now needs to justify her. So um, she quotes Luther here. Woman is needed to bring about the increase of the human race, Luther conceded, reflecting that, quote, Whatever their weaknesses, women possess one virtue that cancels them all. They have a womb, and they can give birth. Um, You're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's a lot of weaknesses to cancel, but I'm glad I was born. Uh, (laughs) uh, So you see how um, this isn't like a spiritual gloss, I think, on uh, economic reality. I think we're just looking at the same thing. Um, The land grab of... um, the wealthy, these are the same people who are Protestantizing. Mm-hmm. And now what's lost is, is any idea of what woman is for and any vocational sense of her as woman, except for ultimately the reproduction of the workforce. And um, I think it's a great irony uh, because... This leads to the kind of material conditions in which the old anti-feminine bias of antiquity, as Balthazar calls it, is kind of made true for the first time. So the Aristotelian oh, I see. definition of woman is a deficient male. The idea is basically that nature tends towards its perfection and uh or to, to to create a, a perfect image of itself, a, a perfect reproduction. Um so Male seed is the active principle, and so it must always strive to produce a male, and then whenever it fails to meet the mark, there you have the female. Mm -hmm. And I don't think this was meant as offensively as uh, sometimes it can be made out to be. Like I don't think, you know, some people just think this is nothing but sexism. I think, yeah, it's sexism, but it's sexism with a metaphysical problem to solve, you know, so there's something there. (laughs) But um, you can see how in this kind of world, the Aristotelian ideology appears to be true. It appears to be descriptive. Like it's no longer simply tackling a metaphysical difficulty. It's now like, yeah, there's this thing called work. And by now we've had two generations go by. And so we don't remember, really remember subsistence life. Mm -hmm. And women are worse at it. And man, they're Mm -hmm. always getting pregnant. And man, Mm -hmm. they're always complaining because, you know, they have a little child. And there is a growing, divorce rates grow through this era, as Illich points out. Oh, and yeah, there's also yeah. just a growing resentment, um, which comes out in a lot of ways, where in this scenario, in this new world we've built, where woman is a deficient male, um, men feel less like they are stealing the bride and more like they're being saddled with the bride. <laughs> uh, and this is reflected in age of ages of marriage, but it's also like you can see it, right? It's mm-hmm. like, okay, so... I work for a wage in order to live, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and I need to take a wife who is, by definition, a worse wage worker than me and will be an expense and will Mm -hmm. provide me with more expenses, namely children. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's probably the worst thing I can imagine. Thank goodness that uh, men and women love each other. (laughs) Because if they didn't, if it really was an economic, I mean, sometimes the Marxists make it sound like that's what is actually motivating us. And it's like, uh, I think the evidence that it's not an economic relation is the fact that we still do it despite these conditions. Um, Still get married, that is. So. Okay, so I think we need to kind of take take scope and then ask, well, what does all this have to do with transgenderism? Yeah, what is the point? Because what we're about is showing how a certain world is necessary for transgenderism to make sense to normal people. Right. And it does make sense to normal people. This Mm -hmm. is, it is not craziness. and That is not what we're dealing with. Um, Right. So I guess um,
1: the first thing that I'm seeing is that like, okay, so now we're living in a system where the way that gender is done is fundamentally different from the past. Like it's been broken. We're not doing the same thing um we're receiving gender in a different way um we're no longer receiving gender from really like working together in this togetherness marriage, uh, solidarity <laughs> um well i was just thinking of the gendered worlds yeah like you was- you have a notion of women being women together yeah and i don't I don't think that we really have that idea as much.
0: Oh, and you can see it really in the Victorian period where um, it, it, sometimes it goes under the title of the woman question, and it's literally like idle rich people asking, like, w- why do women exist?
1: What is the point and, of that? And you
0: have to have <laughs> sympathy with them because they're, they are um, at the end of this movement in history. Which has been the eradication of the authoritative sphere belonging to women, like right. which was the hard, hard one thousand-year fight of Christendom to carve out of paganism, where women were treated basically at the same status as slaves. Um, philosophically, anyways, I'm not saying common people. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you can see that that we're at the end of this. Um, of this long period and that women are now a problem because they don't make sense. And this means that gender uh, as a whole is a problem Mm -hmm. because if women don't make sense, actually men don't make sense
1: Um,
0: because we are in relation. We know Mm -hmm. what we are because we know what the other is. Um, And you can see why at the end, going to 18th century into the 19th century, there's this great resurgence in this idea of um, a one sex theory of humanity Mm -hmm. uh, where, basically the male is the thing and women are some version of that. Um,
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, We just, we experience gender differently. So I guess one of the takeaways that I got from this is that like through this shift from feudalism into capitalism, even my experience of traditional gender norms is fundamentally modern. Yeah. I think that's just, it's helpful to keep in mind. Um, and so, I mean, this isn't as directly tried, uh, tied to transgenderism, um, but it is more tied to feminism, which is a movement that comes before this. Yeah. Um, there, There is an actual rebelling against, like, a new form of doing gender, which happens because of this transition. I mean, you just look at the Victorian area, and you know it's messed up if you just start reading the literature. So there was a real reaction to... This not being done well, um, yeah, and even even like what, yeah, traditional gender roles are not. They're connected to like what has been done in the past, but it is different.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if you mean by traditional gender roles like getting married at twenty eight uh, and brewing beer, then I guess <laughs> we're we're talking the same language. But if you mean like like reproduction as a sort of now now let's be clear there is no escaping the difficulty and the cross and the loneliness of having little children right, like right. nursing well I think sometimes this can sound like yeah in the medieval ages nursing mothers just like slung the child on the back and went out to work in the fields it's like no they didn't there there there's a seasonality in women's life right. where, Yes, it was accompanied by a community that is now foreign mm-hmm. to us, like a community of, of um, grandparents and mothers and daughters and and women coming together for the care of children. Um, so I don't want this to sound like idyllic.
1: Right. Um, but I guess um, uh, Federici talks about this and Ivan Illich talks about this is like you kind of have the invention of the housewives instead of these gendered worlds where you work together yeah. as women as men. Yeah. You have uh, the housewife who is isolated and runs the household by taking the commodities that her husband, who is a wage laborer, yeah. buys. Um, and so you have like this like double dependency that's going on, like the man is dependent on Whoever is giving him the money, and then the woman is dependent on the money that the man is giving her, so that she can go buy commodities. I mean, this is just a different way of doing gender. Yeah, and um, so that that was one takeaway. Uh, the other takeaway that I got was just um, kind of a, a theme going on that uh, the connection between how we understand gender and our relation to work, mm-hmm. um, and so in work changes in the way that we do work as a society changes the way we understand our role our gender it switches over time so in this transition to capitalism gender seems to be isolated i mean everyone is isolated and just becomes like an atomized cog and machine um it also becomes functionalized man is the wage laborer and woman produces the babies for the labor force um, and that kind of got us into, I guess, like the situation of early capitalism that a lot of like feminism and Marxism is responding to.
0: Yeah, it's very hard not to take the theories of the generation before you as as nature. Um, so it seems like in, with, with feminism or as normal, as normal right? yeah. yeah. And so with feminism, it often gets characterized as a reaction against either tradition or nature. And there's some of that. But I think what you see most immediately is that it's uh, a reaction to a reaction. It's a reaction mm-hmm. to the description of um, gender as being primarily functional within an economic goal. Right. Where increasingly it's difficult to see that the ordering of human life for the sake of profit is not a natural fact. As you said, wage labor is not just the norm. Um but is in fact an artificial imposition by people in order to maintain Mm -hmm. like an excessive amount of property and power that they have. So when, when you react against this functionalization of gender, I think it often felt to people like you were reacting against like nature or like what God had put in place to say like, actually, it doesn't seem to fit me to want to just have kids and raise them in this house and give them a college education so they can make money for the market kind of thing Mm -hmm. it's like that kind of malaise uh was the right reaction to have to this way of describing um gender
1: right so you kind of have like the new normal is that the meaning of my gender because more and more of what we're receiving of meaning is coming from the state because it's becoming more and more centralized more more massive so the state is kind of giving from above, that the meaning of gender, your importance, is your role in relation to the labor force. And so that's kind of the world that we're born into and what seems natural. But the transgender moment is something that's kind of moved past that. That was a point that you were making yeah. earlier. That I thought, I thought that was really brilliant because it's not oh, the thanks. same thing... <laughs> It's not the same thing as go- going on because I think there really was a reaction to like, I don't like being reduced to a function, at least with feminism. Yeah. Um, but that, I don't think is what's happening in transgenderism. Yeah. I but- don't think they I don't think it's merely a react. I think, I think the reaction to um, uh, just like the reduced meaning of men and women in general plays a, a part,
0: yeah. But it's
1: a it's a different kind of thing that's going on.
0: Yeah, and again, we're just focusing on one source here, so right. I don't I don't think like this is.
1: Well, it's like how how is this this question of like how is this transition from feudalism into capitalism like? Yeah. How does that provide kind of the the new normal? Yeah. Or.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like up until I don't know. I, I mean, a, a historian would place it better, but. I think you had a reasonable um you had a reasonable situation in which it really did feel like nation states were sort of the end of history that it was natural and normal to be organized for the sake of production and profit and within that there was gender norms where it was the natural and normal and and good thing to do was to basically try to have enough kids to be able to contribute to the workforce, but not so many that it caused sacrifice and difficulty for your contribution and your husband's contribution to the workforce. Mm-hmm. The norm became a kind of balancing act where you provided for the workforce in such a manner that you didn't really require any kind of exit. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking maybe in too complicated of a manner. I'm just saying that the goal is a maximization of profit, Mm -hmm. And so gendered norms became the norms that best served the maximization of profit, which is, yes, you reproduce the workforce to an extent, but then you also live in such a way that you're able to make profit. This is Mm -hmm. one of the things that is, I think, ridiculous about some of Federici's argument, which is that it seems very obvious that in this scenario, abortion and contraception are necessary tools of the state to be able to moderate Uh, reproduction on the one hand and profit profit. creating on on the other hand. It's like, what do we need? Okay, we need women to have children. It's like, okay, this woman just had 10 children. It's like, whoa, 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 no, no, too many children. She needs to be able to put in at least 10 years of work for a major corporation in order to maximize the amount of money we can get out of her and then produce three children, maybe, but two would be ideal in order (laughs) to keep a regular uh, workforce coming after her. Um, And so contraception and abortion are utilized as tools to remedy women's deficiency, which again, in this world, appears natural. It's like, okay, you have males and you have male work and it's the kind of work that goes after money and you have women and they're not as good at it, but if you give them this tool and that tool, which by the way is gonna cost some money, um, then they can remedy their deficient male status and rise to the status of males. So Mm -hmm. that, but then we need some kids. So then go back into sort of femininity and, and have some kids. Okay, so this was for a long time a sort of consensus. It was normal bourgeois morality, right? Mm -hmm. You were a little bit gross and disgusting if you had too many kids, and you were a little bit irresponsible and selfish if you didn't have any kids and just were working. This is the source of the plots of innumerable bad romance movies, (laughs) where the woman looks in the mirror and says something like, how can I have it all? where all means kids and money. <laughs> you got, you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, You've seen yeah, these movies. Yeah, yeah. They're great. Oh, man, what a blast. Okay. <laughs> now, that all made sense, and I think that our sexual ethics, I mean, maybe I'm just a pessimist that, that there was no just, like, divine condemnation of all this and a shattering of this system, but it's just seemed to plow along unchecked um, until recently. And I think if you want to ask, well, what economically changed? It's that we shipped all of our jobs overseas. So what I mean is this, it, it makes sense when you're actually laboring mm-hmm. to describe women as the reproductive element of a workforce that can sometimes labor through these certain tools and then men as just fundamentally they labor. Right. Um, and, and then you just sort of moderate, you do some maternity leave here, some contraception there, and, and you maximize your profits. That made sense when we were working like when there were factories here, when wait, Pittsburgh wait. was making steel. Um, but well, the,
1: you know, basically like when the division of labor made sense because women didn't want those jobs.
0: Right. When and men was, were
1: obviously better at right. them.
0: Yeah, when, when men were working in such a way that they actually felt like only they were capable of it and, and they were proud of it. And when women um, were proud to be married to those men, when there were enough you know, jobs that they could do on the basis of industrial organizations. So like you have to have secretaries, you have to have, I mean, it's basically the post-war ethic. Like right, right. You, you have actually the release of women into the workforce, or it's described as a sort of release, and they stay there precisely to do jobs that men don't want to do. So the sexual division of labor is sort of carried up into industrial mm-hmm. production. But then... When all of our production goes overseas, a really fascinating thing happens, which is, um,
1: well, the division of labor starts not to make sense anymore yeah, exactly. because of the yeah. kinds of jobs that everyone is doing. Like anyone right. can shuffle papers. Yeah, I mean anyone, anyone can sit at a computer screen, graphic
0: design, or something. Yeah, yeah. So there's no there's no longer this sort of necessity to um, distinguish these these roles. Now this is where I think it's actually a phenomenon of decay. It's like a feeling of malaise. It's not like some next step
1: because
0: mm-hmm. now, um, now women who still have to reproduce the workforce have uh, all the jobs available to them. Mm-hmm. So it no longer becomes this sort of balancing act. Rather it becomes this crisis of like there is, every job in America that you could succeed in and climb up the corporate ladder and you're going to get tons of grants from the state because you're a woman to do it. And then you have kids that that kind of ruin that. And so pronatalism in our age becomes very weird. It becomes like desperately trying to put the brakes on on things um, mm-hmm. and saying like, like don't you want kids after all after you spend years, you know making the female CEO as like the ideal of every, of every girl's existence. And in the meantime, guys don't really have work as guys. It's sort of what you would expect, but now everyone is a deficient male, including the males. Right. Uh. Yeah, I
1: remember one of my friends put it this way, just like men just don't have the experience of being needed because anyone could do their job. Yeah, And then even the state with... Like, welfare has taken care of a lot of those complications. Yeah. Men just aren't needed. And that's why you can have women parading around like, yeah, I don't think that we need men. Yeah, totally. Those things, I mean, I <laughs> I should never click on those little videos, <laughs> those little interviews ever. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. always the same. But, I mean, it is kind of wild that, like, we, we live in a society where... I mean, it's kind of like in the Victorian area. How did you get to a point where like, people were legitimately asking the question, like, why do we even need women? Yeah. And then na- now you have women who are legitimately asking the question, why do we even need men?
0: Totally. And, and it's
1: just, it really is just an, an appearance. And we certainly do, but we just don't see it anymore because we push it to the outside. Well, well, or we push it to just like the, the, the lower class. Well, the lo- Everyone in the middle of class, yeah. like we're all doing the same kind of beige yeah, yeah, yeah. thing.
0: yeah. Well, we pushed it to China. I mean, this is what I find to be (laughs) fascinating is that um, we need the traditional gender norms of modernity to be maintained just in other countries. So, like, we can afford to say, okay, we're going to become a consumptive class of white-collar workers. But in China, they need to run factories. And in South America, they need to run factories. And even within our own community, it's like we need to call Mexicans to do the roof. And the, the point is just that
1: That's funny.
0: we rely, <laughs> That's so yeah, true. and let me tell you, it's all guys on the roof, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the, the point is that we rely actually on the maintenance of these conservative gender norms in other places because uh, I think two things are happening here. One is that one of the things we haven't spoken of is that a crucial part of capitalism. Is the production of new desires and new markets. It's the same for the same reason that capitalism had to expand across the globe. It also has to expand in in terms of creating new consumptive desires in people because um,
1: the money machine has got a role.
0: Yeah, yeah. You always have to be producing because mm-hmm. if you don't, you're going to end up at equilibrium, oh, yeah. and you're you not going to be able to get capital for uh, for to pay your investments, and you're not going to be able to... You're basically approaching subsistence life again. That's the problem. Okay, so in this scenario, consumption becomes as important as production, because consumption is the sort of passive principle that calls forth the activity of production, which in turn pays all the wages and keeps the world from collapse. And so it's as important that we create populations whose real purpose within a global capitalist economy is just to eat and, and, and feed on things. And they can be wild things, they can be ridiculous things, as long as they are producing wage labor somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me this new moment in our country is basically that we pretend like we're working and producing, but this is mostly just shuffling things around. What we're mostly doing is consuming and providing mm-hmm. the basis for uh, conservative, gendered, sexual division of labor work in other countries, um, which kind of feed us from the outskirts, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so we even expect and hope that everyone's, you know, um, having kids and that the kids are getting opportunities to work at the factories that we build in foreign countries and. When we go in our various efforts to preach, uh, you know, a sort of LGBT rights or something, we often are going to nations where we have to explain the terms. Mm-hmm. We're like, "You don't respect LGBT people here," and they're like, "What does that mean?"
1: And we're mm-hmm. like, "Well,
0: let's tell you the category of people that you don't have, so you can learn to expect it, respect it." And one of the reasons this is happening is because we're at odds ideologically like our economic system is um relying on the old uh gender norms and then our sort of ideological system is is it it doesn't realize that its own dependency it doesn't realize that it's actually dependent on um man and woman and creating children and children working and all that
1: right right i guess um kind of put in my, my own words um, from when we were talking earlier, I was still picking up that same thread of the relation of uh, understanding gender from work, yeah. Um, like meaning from work. And like the first movement is that the meaning of the gendered worlds is atomized, reduced, functionalized. And so you're still getting your meaning In your relation to work which is now the labor force and that still is happening today but at least in america our relation to the workforce is as consumer Mm -hmm. um and so
0: yeah and so instead of it um
1: like it's just it's we live in a world where i mean we can legitimately ask the question why do we need men we can legitimately ask the question why do we need women um And we're taught how to be consumers. And so that's the way that we also kind of approach uh, gender. Like, maybe I don't like this functional role that's been assigned to me. Like, I'll just consume a different one.
0: Totally.
1: Um, And it doesn't seem so wild and crazy to do that because what it, the contributions that men and women uniquely bring is just not so obvious and it's not so apparent in a consumerist world yeah, because anyone can do anything and anyone can be anything and anyone can buy anything. Right.
0: Cause all you need to do is something that will get you money mm-hmm. and then the world is, is open to you.
1: Right. So I guess to kind of answer the, the, the question uh, that we originally posed in the introduction, like what, what kind of system and what are the layers of the system that we're seeing through that allows transgenderism to be normal to your normal person is we, we live, uh, as consumers, um, ah, now I'm losing my thought.
0: One of the things, uh, I initially see is that the, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> call my, it's my wife. Um, oh man, now I'm thrown off. Oh, um, yeah. So in a consumptive society, you, you have, you know, previously you have the answer to the question, what am I for? What does it mean to be a woman? If it's coming from below, if it's coming from custom, if it's coming from the land of your belonging, of your family, and these are precisely the things that are being um, eroded. Mm-hmm. Even though we do require people to have enough of this sense of belonging to be reproducing a workforce right. in foreign countries, for us, um, we need to go elsewhere. Uh, so we're consuming out of, out of a need to find some kind of embeddedness. Um, we're consuming out of a need to... Um, basically craft a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. This is often how people will speak to me about their experience of transgenderism, um, of being transgender, being trans. It's like, I knew I didn't fit. I knew I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted was belonging. And I saw this group, which appeared to me as an object that I could join. And I identified with them more strongly because of all these various feelings that I had. And, I think that's really crucial to acknowledge it's like yeah you do live without a clear source of belonging right and the only thing you're told about maleness is basically antiquated now like the idea that it's uh necessary you know to be strong it's like, no, it's uh, no, not. No. You don't have to be strong at all.
1: Like you can be a complete nerd and just spend time on your computer all day and make loads of money. The
0: rulers of the world are, are pretty pathetic, I've noticed. <laughs> um, I mean, They're I could, I could take at sunlight. least a few of them. Yeah, well, <laughs> and when they do, it's like this extrinsic thing. It's like, yeah, I made my, all my money with the stock market, and I work out every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so the, the point being that it makes sense to be disembedded in this world and to look to the other gender um, as providing a kind of objectivity that you might be able yeah. to grab onto and then have belonging. Again. Or
1: even like, not, like if you're, if you are, uh, I mean, like looking for uh, meaning and belonging and also having a, a role to play, it doesn't even necessarily have to be that I look at men and say, I want to belong to that group because being a transgender man is its own
0: sure, category, yeah. is its oh, own totally. group.
1: And I think, I mean, that seems to be, I think how transgender, a lot of them see themselves. It's like, well, I know I'm not the same as... Yeah, totally. Women who are always women yeah. and men who are always men. Yeah, but it, I have like, this we, we belong to the same category, even there's this distinction between us. Yeah. But there certainly is that sense of belonging with people who have transitioned.
0: Yeah, yeah. And well, you do
1: also kind of have a role to play to um, certainly culturally within oh, uh, transgenderism, like you, you, yeah. you are doing something for society. Oh, it's an. Adventure. You have a clear role, which we'll, I mean, we will get to that later. Yeah. So maybe we should stop that conversation. Yeah,
0: no, but you, but you're right to just anticipate it. It it's the return of vocation, I think, for a lot of people. Um, okay, so I think yeah, no, I think that's a great a great place to end. So you really can't imagine the sort of normalness of transgenderism unless people have been. Number one, disembedded from from the sources of of belonging um, in the uh, gendered worlds, mm-hmm. and then for all of the replacements of mm-hmm. that source of belonging to themselves fail, because we can yep. no longer just be. A, we don't live in a world in which we're given these strong false ideas of man and woman. We're not. We're not. Uh, no one says anything because the ubiquity of money has become the dominant life form and it has nothing to say about gender. There's mm-hmm. no distinctiveness at the end of the day, whatever makes money will make money. And it doesn't matter what kind of chromosomes you have while you do it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it seems to me that this kind of reality, this kind of economic reality is necessary as a sort of base from which to look out and say, um, yeah, I can sort of pick what I'm going to be and how I'm going to be it. Um, as a, as a free floating commodity.
1: Right. Well, I think that wraps this up. Okay.
0: Hey, thanks for listening, everyone. We will see you next time.